The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls." and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you again, Morgan. So um, one of the most uh, pathetic instances in The scriptures among the disciples can be found in the 20th chapter of Matthew, and this is where James and John, two of the disciples of Jesus, um, put their mother up to uh, approaching Jesus with a question, and the question is, Lord, when you're seated on your throne in your kingdom in all of your glory, my request is that my boys, James and John, will get to sit at your right hand and your left hand. And The other disciples actually were eavesdropping on this conversation, and it says that all of them were indignant or irate or angry that this conversation was even happening, that James and John would have the audacity to put their mother up to ask Jesus such an audacious question, but why would they be indignant unless they were also the ones who wanted to sit on the throne of Jesus along with Jesus? Every one of them, just like James and John wanted to be number one. And Jesus responds and He says, guys, we don't do things like that, and this is actually not how the kingdom of God works. And He says, you know 
that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. And I'll come back to that later on in the message, but But what Jesus is saying here to his followers is that the same seeds that were in the heart of the devil, Satan himself, that caused him to fall from heaven, are in your heart too. And the seeds are the seeds that say, it is not a good thing to be number two. It is not a good thing to not be the one who's celebrated, lauded, and glorified and made the center of everything. Those seeds are in your hearts too, Jesus says. They're also the same seed that caused Cain to murder his brother Abel. They're the same seeds that caused King Saul to become an aggressor toward David because he felt threatened by David's ascending popularity the same seed that's in the heart of some preachers that the Apostle Paul wrote about when he said that there are actually some who preach the gospel of Christ not from a good motive but out of rivalry. Envy, comparing, competing. Jesus says that's not how we do things in the kingdom. In fact, the greatest in the kingdom are actually the ones who serve. You actually become a king by by virtue of not acting like one. And you lose your kingliness by virtue of trying to be one, he says. So, one of the um, friendships that Patty and I developed in uh, New York City when we lived there was with with a pastor there named J.R. Vassar and his wife, Ginger. And uh, they planted a church called Apostles Church. It's a a thriving Acts 29 church there in Manhattan. But he wrote a book uh, in the wake of that experience, and the book was called Glory Hunger. And one of the quotes that is from that book has stuck with me ever since I first read it, where J.R. says, I want God to do great things, but I just want Him to do them through me. I want God to do great things, but I want Him to do those great things through me. See, what's the problem here? What is our problem? It's it's in verse 4 of our text this morning where it says that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. And we've talked about what envy is recently. Envy is the inability to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. Instead, we rejoice over those who are mourning and we mourn over those who are rejoicing. It's compare and compete. This is what drives capitalism in many respects. Self-interest of Joneses trying to keep up with other Joneses. It also drives a socialist economy and climate where one class is filled with envy toward another class. It's the battle of the classes, whereas capitalism is the battle of individuals and organizations and such. All politics really boils down to this. People and groups of people trying to gain leverage over other people and groups of people so as to seize control of things. 
You know, college students, there was a survey done not too long ago where a full 75% of the college students admitted to cheating on at least one exam and or term paper because of the pressure of competition. And so envy is, you could say, our shadow side. That's, that's the darker side of, of work and effort and the things that we've been given to do. But there's also something else at play. So the other thing that's at play is something that God instilled in the human heart in the Garden of Eden when He looked at Adam and Eve and He said, here's the first great commission. I want you to get to work. I want you to tend my garden. I want you to take raw material that I have created and make something beautiful out of it that will benefit the flourishing of the world and benefit the flourishing of, of yourself and of others. And He's given dominion, Adam is, over the fish and the sea and the birds and the animals and the earth. And so what's going on here in Ecclesiastes? There's a sense in which every one of us feels like we should be a king or a queen on top of the world. And there's a sense in which it's actually true. You know, the philosopher Blaise Pascal said this, who is unhappy at not being a king except for a deposed king, for a king who's been removed from the throne. And what Ecclesiastes hints at is this very reality that we were born on a throne, meant to occupy that throne. Kings and queens with dominion over God's world, given to us by God, and it's been taken from us. You may remember last week, if you were here, we talked about how God has put eternity in the heart of every human being, and what that leaves us with is this nostalgia for paradise, this, this longing for a home that we came from and that we have not seen or visited yet. That's what it means to be created as a human being in a fallen world. And one of the common strategies that we use to overcome this tension, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, is to use our work to recover what we feel has been lost, the greatness that we feel like has been lost. And so, so I've got two points for us today. One is an approach to work that can kill our joy, and then renewal practices that can help recover our joy. So the approach to work that can kill our joy, it's this, it's when envy ends up becoming a driver to whatever we do, whether it's, whether it's paid or unpaid work, executives envying other executives, mothers and fathers envying other mothers and fathers, fathers artists envying other artists, students envying other students, pastors envying other pastors, colleagues envying other, past, uh, other colleagues. You know, you heard how Kyle set up the confession this morning. There, there is no end to our tendency to compare and compete, and it, it tires us out. <clears throat> but what this competitive or rival spirit leads us to is what you could call workaholism. Workaholism, or what the writer here says in verse 6, is two hands that are always full of toil. It's all you ever do. It's what you, that's what you think about, and that's what drives you when you're awake, and it's even what you dream about when you sleep. Work, 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 busy, 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 busy. Two hands full of toil. So you've got nothing left in your hands. There's no space in your hands for anything else but toil. 
hands that are full of work, zero margin for Sabbath and quietness, no room for things like rest and rejuvenation and community. And he says there's no end, in verse 8, there's no end to this kind of toil. And so, um, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, it's, it's all the rage these days. Uh, it's, it's sort of this, this new popular, it's not new, but, but it's, its popularity is relatively new. It's a, sort of a personality tool and such. And I am squarely and solidly a number three on the Enneagram, which is the achiever. And my Achilles heel is workaholism. And when an Enneagram 3 is an un, in an unhealthy place, she or he will work not in order to serve others or the common good, will not work because of the goodness and beauty of the work itself, but rather will work and work and work and work and work with two hands full of work all the time to establish an identity, to, 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 to make a name for oneself. Henry Ford, I would guess that he might have been a three also, said this, I do not think that a man can ever leave his business. He ought to think of it by day and dream of it by night, thinking men know that work is the salvation of the race, physically, morally, and socially. Work does not just make us a living, it gives us a life. You hear the subtweet there. If you don't have meaningful work, you don't have a life. And the motivation here, again, is not creating goods and services as much as it is the creating of a self. It's about you. But here's the tragic outcome of that philosophy of life where I've got two hands full of work and I'm, I'm trying to chase after an identity with, what, with the work that's in both of my hands. Fatigue, exhaustion, and isolation. Verse 13, did you catch this detail? The king, the driven king, will no longer take advice from anyone. He's all alone. You know, Derek Kidner in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says this, the king has reached the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. You know, Ellen Goodman uh, wrote a piece in the Minneapolis Tribune some time ago about a man who died at age 51. And what was unique about this man was that he didn't have cancer, he didn't have any terminal disease. It was one of these odd things. He didn't get hit by a truck. He just died at age 51. And the consensus around him from medical professionals and those who knew him was he died from overwork. He died from workaholism. He would put in six solid days a week of work. He would get home typically after 9 p.m. every night on those six days. And then on day seven, he'd also sneak in about four or five hours of work. And on the day of his funeral, the president called a staff meeting together and said, who's going to take this man's place? It has to be whoever it is in our organization that works the hardest. Who's it going to be? And nobody raised their hand. The most tragic line in the whole story was when a friend of the family said to the wife, I know how much you're going to miss him. And the wife responds, oh, 
I already have missed him. But it's not, here's the thing about the king and his castle. It's not just the loved ones who are lonely. The kings themselves become lonely as a product of their own workaholism. A friend of mine in the music industry has shared with uh, Patty and me a story about an artist that um, is just killing it, king of the charts and so on. And every now and then he'll get a call in the middle of the night from this artist after a concert in which another stadium was sold out and, and, and filled up with 50,000 adoring fans, and the call always goes the same way. How you doing? Not so good. Tell me about it. I've had 50,000 people eating out of the palm of my hands every night, and I am the loneliest person in the stadium every time. You know, there are two supreme gifts that God gave to Adam in the garden. His work, which is a good thing. It's a good thing, work is. Dominion, a job to do, something to own, something to create, something to renovate and restore, to encourage and support the flourishing of the common good. And just the work itself is a good and beautiful thing. The other thing that God gave him was companionship. And what the teaching of Ecclesiastes uh, this morning is after is this. If, if you give both of your hands to the former, to the dominion aspect, you will lose the companionship aspect, but you will also lose all joy in the dominion aspect if you've got two hands full of work instead of just one. In verse 16, he says, there's no end to all the people that the king led. He was killing it. No end to the number of people that this, this king was leading. But catch what he says next. Yet those who come later, future generations, will not rejoice in him. He'll be forgotten. And we quote Anne Lamott a good bit in here where, you know, that, that one place where, you know, she's asked, what, what the, what's the world going to be like in a hundred years? You could answer the question. All new people all new people. But here's the deal. You don't have to wait and die. You don't have to wait and die to be forgotten. You know, who, who, are, who are the basketball players that we celebrate right now, right? LeBron James. But before LeBron James, there was Kobe Bryant. Before there was Kobe Bryant, there was Michael Jordan. When's the last time you heard from Michael? When's the last time you heard about Michael? He's still around. See, so sometimes the envy isn't just of somebody else, it's the envy of who you used to be. And that will eat you alive if you've got both hands full of work, he's saying. He's urging us to see that there's so much more to life than just winning. There's a lot more to life than just winning. And then you could swing the pendulum in the other direction, he says. This is where we see in verse 5, the opposite, the polar opposite of a workaholic, where you, you, you don't have two hands of work, but you don't even have one hand full of work. Instead, you're just folding your hands, it says. It says, the fool folds his hands, and as he does, he eats up his own flesh. You know, this is the bottom shelf version 
of working out of envy. You know, they're either those who get ahead in the rat race because of envy or those who can't get ahead no matter how hard they try. They never hit their goals. They never hit their number. They never get the promotion. They always get overlooked and they're working to the bone. This person becomes the cynic. This person is the one who says, forget about it. I'm retiring at 42. I'm done. Just give me a set of golf clubs and I'll be on my way. Just give me some soap operas or some Netflix binge opportunities and I'm on my way. Then you eat your own flesh if you stop the work. And so we're kind of up the creek either way. But this person, the sort of the, the vocational cynic, is, is pictured in a, a character named Peter in the movie Office Space. Peter is sort of stuck in the middle of his mediocre organization and just disenchanted by work altogether. And he visits a hypnotherapist and, and he says this to his hypnotherapist. I was sitting in my cubicle today and I realized that ever since I started working, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's the worst day of my life. How'd you like to have him as a roommate? How'd you like to be married to him? And when we check into work too much, when we fill both of our hands with it, 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 it messes us up. When we check out of work and we don't fill either of our hands with it, that messes us up too because we're, we're created for two great commissions. Go into the world and share the gospel, make disciples, and get busy with something. And so, is there a recovery process? I, I think so. And he, he, he hints at it here. Two renewal practices that can help to recover our joy. And I'll frame it this way. One is better than two, and two are better than one. So let's start with one is better than two. Verse 6, better is one handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. So in this picture, you've got one hand that's actually empty of work and filled with other things that he refers to as quietness, things like Sabbath and worship and sleep and friends and companions, but you've still got another one that's full of meaningful work where you image God, where mothers and fathers image the nurture of God, where artists and entrepreneurs image the creativity of God, where Government employees and executives image the rule of God, where accountants image the orderliness of God, where healthcare professionals and counselors image the healing attributes of God, educators image the wisdom of God, students image the imagination of God, nonprofit workers the mercy of God, fashion and grooming people the beauty of God, marketing and advertising people the evangelistic impulses of God. People in the legal profession and judicial branch and such, the justice of God. So here we've got a picture of the goodness of work. He doesn't say empty both your hands. He says empty one of your hands. So there's the goodness of work that's being affirmed here. I love what Missy Wallace says sometimes about Jesus. You know, Missy's the director of Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. 
She says it's wise to remember that Jesus spent more time working as a carpenter than he did as a minister. That says something about the dignity and goodness of work. But in the other hand is quietness. You know, the empty hand is key. The hand that's empty of work is, is key to a full heart. This is the Sabbath hand, which also happens to be the hand that defines your entire existence and identity. There is nothing in this hand that defines your identity, the work hand, the toil hand. It has nothing to do with your value or your identity. This hand, the quiet hand, the receptive hand, the hand that says, nothing in my hand I bring, is the one where your identity rests. And when you've got one handful of toil and one handful of quietness, you are then able to distinguish between identity and calling. Your identity is in your Sabbath hand. Your calling is in your vocational hand. And we get in trouble and we eat up our own flesh when we confuse the two. Chariots of Fire, wonderful movie. Youth pastors, Kyle, talk about the Princess Bride. Pastors of entire churches talk about chariots of fire. They're just kind of the go-tos, right? Two people, same vocation, Harold Abrams, Eric Liddell, both Olympic track athletes, world-class sprinters, and you've got Harold Abrams on the one hand who's got two hands full of toil, and you can see the angst of it throughout the whole story, but there's this one spot in the movie that's this chilling internal monologue where, where Abrams is about, in, in about one hour, about to run his last race of the Olympics. And in the internal monologue, he says this, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? But will I? Lose or win, will it be enough to justify my existence? Because a hundred years, all new people. And in ten years, I'm going to be envying the man that I am now. And I'm going to look back on this time when the grass is green, but right now I'm not feeling any green grass. It's a trick that the heart plays on itself. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither, as C.S. Lewis said. And then you've got Eric Liddell whose race is scheduled on the Sabbath, and he, and he says, look, every day of my life is one handful of toil and one handful of quietness, but on the Sabbath I'm called to have two hands full of quietness, and so I'm going to pull myself out of the race that the odds say I am the hands-on favorite to win the gold. This is real-life biography, by the way, and yet it's Liddell and not Abrams who's able to say, when I do toil, when I do run, that's when I feel the pleasure of God. One is saying, that's when I try to justify my existence, and another is saying, that's when I feel pleasure. Same vocation, 
completely different heart perspectives. The less needy we are to be kings, the more like kings we're going to feel. So one is better than two. One handful of toil is better than two hands full of toil. But then two are better than one. Also in the Sabbath hand, the quietness hand, is this thing that the Bible urges us to chase after, and that is companions. Verses 9 through 12, two are better than one. If they fall, one will lift up the other. If two lie together, they keep warm. A threefold cord is not quickly broken, which suggests that three are better than two, and four are better than three, and, and so on. You know, there's strength in numbers. If I were to hand you a piece of dental floss and, and, and challenge you to try to break it with your bare hands, you, you, it'd take a little bit of a pull, but you'd, you'd be able to snap it pretty easily. But if I took, let's say, six strands of dental floss and, and, and wove them together as, as, a, as a tiny little rope and, and, and said, I, you know, try, I challenge you to try to break it with your bare hands, you'd be at it all day. Because what is fragile by itself becomes unbreakable when it's woven together with other fragile selves, especially under the gospel. Solitary people, this is the takeaway, solitary people are vulnerable people. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Even Jesus, the perfect God-man, surrounded Himself with concentric communal circles. He had the 72, and He had the 12 and he had his three, Peter, James, and John. And you might argue that he also had his one in John, the beloved disciple, who would care for his mother after his death. Relational people are full-hearted people. You know, there are all these studies now on, you know, how to prolong your life. And, and, and one of the ones that's come out recently indicates that length of life is directly proportional to the degree to which we spend our lives in community and out of isolation, knowing and being known. And this makes sense, being made in the image of a triune God. He's completely one, but He's also completely three. And so we can't be vitally connected to this kind of God and, and think that we can go it alone. And this, my friends, I would submit to you is the reason, or at least a big part of the reason, why God has given us the local church, which is the theme of next Sunday's message. But, you know, Psalm 68 tells the whole story. You know, it's so unfortunate that Western Christianity has, has thrust the nuclear family right in the center of Christian identity when Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul were both single men. Psalm 68 says, whatever your marital status, whatever your generation, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your nation of descent, whoever you're attracted to, whether you live alone or whether you live in a house full of people, God puts the solitary in a family. This is the family. And He gives the solitary as a community, the, the fragile strands woven together so that we become unbreakable, a table that He, the carpenter, 
has built for us. And at this table, he says, he preaches to us, I spent my whole life with two hands full of toil so that at the end I could say it is finished. Those are the last words of my life so that they can become the first words of yours. So that you work out of a verdict rather than toward one. You work from an identity rather than to justify your existence by establishing one with your two hands full of toil. And so today we come to Him, nothing in my hands I bring. Are you ready for that? I pray so. Let's pray. Lord, You went on to say to James and John and to all the other disciples who were eavesdropping that whoever would be first among us would be the servant of all, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Father, this is the key. This is the secret that every day of our lives we would have one hand full of You and the quietness that You provide through worship and Scripture and prayer and meditation and human beings to chew on the truth and beauty of the gospel alongside and local churches and communion tables small groups and other kinds of communities, Father, You give a handful of quietness to us so that when we turn to that handful of toil, we can engage that handful of toil in such a way as to feel Your pleasure. As we approach Your table, Your supper at the carpenter's table, Lord, we profess once again to You, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Thank You for the cross. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.